0: It's gloomy, it's nice and bright in here.
1: It's always yeah. bright at Serving Up Science. <laughs> and so this is actually our first show in front of an audience. So you might say it's an experiment of sorts. So
0: please go easy on us. Alright?
1: My name is Cheryl Kirshenbaum.
0: And I'm Corel Vega. Serving Up Science is on WKAR every Wednesday afternoon, and we explore science, food, and the science of food.
1: Like whether it's okay to eat genetically modified foods or why both of us are pretty excited for more and more plant-based food alternatives or what's up with pumpkin spice every fall and is there any pumpkin in pumpkin spice? We take a very
0: broad brush stroke in our show.
1: And this live show, if you might have heard any of the promos, is all about taste. Did you know some of us are super tasters?
0: Although you might not even know it.
1: Being a super taster might not actually be all that helpful either, as we'll hear. But today, you all get to hear, uh, or you all get to find out if you might be a super taster. So before we go any further, when you walked in, you should have gotten a little baggy with a piece of paper in it. I just want to make sure, don't take it out quite yet. So make sure everybody has one. It would look like this. If you don't, you can go <coughs> in back. and give anyone who needs to a minute to just pop out and get one extra strip. Folks who might have missed them on the way, or take an extra for a friend later at home. And you might want to take a mint or a bottle of water. Yes, there
0: are mints. um, If If you're not sure,
1: if you're wondering.
0: So let's get this started to kick off Serving Up Science. Please join me in welcoming our first guest, Robin Tucker, Assistant Professor in Food Science and Human Nutrition at Michigan State University.
2: Good evening. Can everybody
0: hear
2: me? Yes. OK. All right. So uh, welcome to Serving Up Science. I am going to be your guide for a taste adventure tonight. Um, this section of our of our show here does require audience participation so you should not be shy if I ask you questions please uh, raise your hand and, and feel free to share your experiences with us okay all right so so
1: we're
2: going to talk about whether tasting is actually a super thing to to do. Is it a superpower that you have, or is it maybe not such a great thing to be a super taster? So you're going to find out tonight, right? Oh, gave it away. (laughs) Alright, I need you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. I need you to think about your favorite food. Can you picture it? Okay. If you can't think of one, think think of a couple. You got it? All right, open your eyes. Why is that your favorite food? Show of hands. Yes, sir? Complexity of taste. Complexity of
0: taste. What is your favorite food? Um, pretty
1: much anything with a good, true vanilla.
2: Oh, very nice. Okay, like real vanilla, not that extract stuff, like the get at the grocery store, okay. The hard to find stuff. Hard to find. <laughs> the classy stuff. Okay, what about you? What, why, what is your favorite food and why is it your favorite food? Uh, grape leaves because it's something that we made growing up, and so kind of tradition. And- sure, so both history, like personal history, family history, culture plays an important role in the foods that we like and that we become accustomed to. Excellent. What about you? What's your favorite food? Hot pot. Hot pot. Yeah. Hot pot. Why? Why do you like hot pot? Uh, I don't know. You don't? It's delicious, right? has probably some umami taste to it, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Okay? Any, any other reasons why you like the food that you like? So the texture, very nice mouthfeel, kind of coats the mouth, very good. There's probably some temperature um, associated with that that's very pleasing, excellent. What else? Any other reasons that we haven't covered or um actually any, my husband hates this. Anything fatty. Anything fatty? What is it like like the smooth texture
1: or crispy? <coughs> Both. Both. <laughs> well, I going to up to
3: Always had like a pig on a spit. Sure. So every time we had like a, a major celebration, the pig comes out, and I normally go for the skin first because that's what everyone like wants. Yeah. And then you're coming together because it is a celebration. Right. So, so we're celebrating around food, people we love. And you know, if you don't have the pig, you don't have Right. <laughs> so that's an important. It's
2: a, it's a celebration. And so we have certain foods that we associate with celebrations. And those can be very cultural. Um, many of us probably eat birthday cake on our birthday. So that's something that's kind of a cultural thing, at least in this country. Um, any other reasons that we didn't? Yeah. I like
0: dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. The bitter. Oh, I like that little bitter taste to bitter it. It doesn't have to be real sweet. I can get like 70, all
2: right, you sir are a, a hardcore chocolate fan because eighty of... you percent. Know, no
0: chocolate, I can just throw it out. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's the, the bitter. Mm. That that particular note you're looking for.
2: Got it. Yes. Well,
0: third cheese and and
2: cheddar. Really? Why cheddar? No, it's too strong. Mm. Okay. All right. Very good. What else? Yes. Smells. The smell of food. Yes. I'm gonna some coffee. Yeah. So do you like coffee or you don't like coffee? I like coffee. You like yeah. coffee. Okay, does anyone you here not like coffee? Thank you, you're my people. Okay. <laughs> I know, like I know people when you walk into the Starbucks or, or coffee and it just that odor and you just feel like you've just been hugged, right? I can't stand that. <laughs> it is stomach churning. I kind of just hold my nose and get my Starbucks tea and, and, and get out of there as fast as I can. So there's some individual differences in the room, right? What What about you? Well, what's, so what does it mean if you don't like coffee but you love the smell of it? That is weird and we need to study you. So I, I study taste and so I, I'm really interested in that. But you, you bring up an important point and we're going to get to that in just a second, okay? Any other reasons that we didn't cover? How many for most of you that answer, oh go, go ahead. Sarah. Dumplings in
0: traditional Chinese will make me comfortable
2: and busy be, be in my home. Sure, so do you have any family recipes like yeah. grandma's you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, stuffing or, or tuna casserole or something like that? Things that just bring you back to your childhood and, and think of good times? Yeah.
3: Another is texture sometimes when you want to crunch mm. and uh, Get either whatever
1: you like, pretzels sure. or whatever, and you look down and all of a sudden half the bag is gone. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: I don't do it for
1: these guys. You've heard, <laughs> that. You've heard that that can happen. Yeah. It's just not happened to you. I understand.
2: Okay. <laughs> if, yes, sir. I heard sour. Sour. I
1: have a bond of sour, things, like balsamic vinegar.
2: Oh, yeah. Did you, is that something you kind of grew into, or have you always liked that? Always like that. And I, I like to try different flavored vinegars, and, you know, lemon, lime, and, and sour tastes. Sure. Very interesting. Fish. Sorry? Fish. 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 You like fish? Yeah. Any particular kind of fish? Mm. like fish? fish yeah. Mm. Okay. Is that associated with, with uh, good memories in the past I or something newer? Grandma. Grandma? Mm. Yeah.
1: Apricots?
2: Uh, yeah, from my hometown. Ah, so you associate associated with home. Yeah. Did you eat them growing up? No, no? just yeah. more so recently. Yeah. Okay. So I, I yeah. Well, one of my favorite foods is a, a perfectly ripe peach. And it, they're hard to find because if it's too ripe, the texture is, isn't is right. But yeah. if it's that perfect sweetness, I, there's really nothing in my mind that comes so into, it's sweet. Uh, anybody else have their hand up? Like, oh, all the way in the back. Did
1: anyone mention heat?
2: Heat? No. So, or... so you like the spice? Yeah. Very good. Did you always like that? Did you grow up in a house that ate a lot of spicy food or did you acquire that taste over time?
0: My family immigrated from Russia, which meant we ate zero spice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So
2: we're not we're not really born with an appreciation for spiciness or heat, but in cultures where that food is is predominant or there's a lot of spice, those those kids learn to like it as they grow up. So you learn to develop an appreciation, and you can you don't have to be a child to develop that appreciation. You can do it as an adult, as you, you kind of talked about. Somebody else, uh, I think you had it. what why, what is your favorite food and why do you like it? Ice cream. Uh, Cold. Yeah.
1: I like ice cream too. What's your favorite flavor?
2: I don't like it You don't like it all? All right. I like it. Anything else that we missed? Any other reasons why you like the food you do? And when we ask people, large groups of people, why they like the foods that they like, the number one answer is taste. In this country, most of us are fortunate enough to be able to, to eat the foods that we like, right? Wide variety, easily accessible, pretty um, cost-neutral, right? doesn't cost us a lot to eat things here, whereas in other countries, much more of their income is spent on food. So we have the luxury of being able to select the things that we like when we eat them. Um, but when people say taste, what they really mean is flavor, the flavor of food. Do you know what the difference between taste and flavor actually is? is flavor, smell? flavor is, so, so that she said, flavor is smell. That is on the right track. Flavor includes smell. What else do you think flavor includes? Uh, taste
1: is a verb, but flavor is a noun. Oh, I like it. Flavor is a noun. I I will agree with that. <laughs>
2: of all of the sensory input that you're getting from food. So it includes smell or the odor of food. Think about if you walk into the house and someone has just pulled out a freshly baked tray of chocolate chip cookies. What does that smell? It's just very, at least to me, it's very nice. Um, so we've got taste and odor. What else contributes to flavor? Some of the things that you mentioned. Sound. 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 Can you give an example of like where the sound is important?
1: If you're after something crunchy, um, I know there's been experiments done with this where people have had uh, uh, sound provided to them to either dampen the, the, the sound of the crunch or to highlight it, and that has directly impacted their enjoyment of the flavor of what they were eating.
2: Yes. Think about, think about if you can, biting into a perfectly ripe, crisp apple. And have you ever bitten in, you're excited to to bite into this perfectly crisp, wonderful fresh apple, and you bite into it and it's mushy? Ah, see? Yeah, the texture, which is part of flavor, is wrong. The sound is wrong. Okay? Stale potato chips. Stale stale anything, right? Just that that sound is not quite right. So sound plays an important part. Texture plays an important part. Odor, taste. And we've we've left out one important thing. Seal color. Mouthfeel is part of texture, you're absolutely right. Who ate blue carrot? Col- color so, so the appearance of food, right? You've heard the phrase, you eat with your eyes, or my, you know, my eyes are bigger than my stomach. The visual appeal of food is really important um, for us to get excited about eating. OK. So all right. So we've got flavor. It's the whole, it's the whole package. Tonight we're going to focus just on taste. And so it's one component of flavor. And I think you'll see how important it is, but also um, how other things might outshine it sometimes. Depends on the food. Okay. Uh, why do you think we've developed a sense of taste? Why do humans and animals? Why are they able to taste food? What do you think that the purpose of taste is? It helps us keep from poisoning ourselves by eating spoiled or poisonous. Exactly. So taste is a signaling system. It's a warning system. So we don't accidentally ingest food that could poison us. Or make us really sick like rancid or spoiled foods what else would taste do for us nutritional density nutritional density so different taste qualities indicate certain nutrients that we need to survive so sour is often a good indicator of vitamin c which is something we need to survive bitter is suggestive of things that are not good for us right sweet taste indicates some carbohydrate, an energy source, we need energy to stay alive. Why else would we taste things? One important thing. There's
0: a social aspect.
2: There is a social aspect, absolutely. Um, And and usually that's around food that we enjoy, right? So what if you didn't enjoy eating?
3: You wouldn't do it to keep yourself alive.
2: Exactly. So there's a survival aspect to taste, right? Helps us identify stuff that's not good for us, <laughs> helps us identify stuff that is good for us, and makes us attempt to identify those things, right? So taste plays an important role in your overall health, and it plays an important role in the foods that you select. Okay. Do you want to see if you're a super taster? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I've drawn this out a little too much. Let's get to the real stuff. Okay. In your One more thing, I I just, I blew it. Tell me why you think it would be a good idea, or a good thing, or a bad thing, to be a super taster. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what it is, super taster for sweet, super taster for bitter.
0: Uh, As a super taster, some flavors are ruined for you that are fairly common. Right,
2: and so some of those foods that you don't like as a super taster are actually very healthy and good for you. So you could be missing out on important nutrition, right? Why would it be a good thing to be a super taster?
3: What's the definition of a super taster?
2: We're going to find out. So, super tasters are people who are uh, more sensitive to, in this case, tonight we're going to look at bitter, but we'll find out, or I'll tell you, that if you're super sensitive to bitter, you're also probably sensitive to sweet and salty as well. So, you're able to detect smaller amounts of it than, say, a non taster. So you're gonna have a different sensory experience when you're eating the same food as somebody who's a non-taster. Does that change as you get older, or more when you're younger? So you are born a super taster. Born a super taster. This is a very genetic trait. Um, it's not perfectly genetic, but um, it is largely genetic. All right, let's do it. So. This is a group activity. We're going to do this all at the same time. Okay, no, no jumping ahead. I have to do it. So you should. You yeah, you don't.
1: We, you don't have to experiment on yourself. Yes. <laughs> you don't want to. It's a really good point. This is
2: a voluntary exercise. You can just choose to laugh at the people who do decide to do it. You do not have to do it. Okay. So there is no peer pressure here. Don't. Don't succumb. All right. On this strip is a chemical called phenylthiocarbamide or phenylthiourea. It is a bitter taste to those of us who can taste it. Some of you will not taste anything. You will think that this is just a piece of paper and I have played a terrible trick on you. Okay? Some of you will think I've tried to poison you. It's going to be very bitter. It's not going to be very nice. We have mints if you need them. Okay? Um, and some of you are going to be like, oh, it's definitely not just paper, but it's not. Why, why are these people freaking out? OK, so there's sort of one of three possible experiences here. So when I say go, not now, when I say go, you're going to take this strip and place it on your tongue and close your lips around it and leave it there for, we're going to say about 10 seconds. Okay. Are you ready? One, two, three, go. All right. When well, you think you've had enough of this experience, you can take this out. Corral is a secret So, how many of you said there's nothing on this paper? She's a liar and a cheater. Okay. So there's probably, I would say, maybe 20% of you who are non tasters. Okay. What about those of you who thought I was trying to poison you? Oh I I apologize for that, but welcome to Super Taster You are super tasters. What about those of you who like, yeah, there's something here, but it's not that bad. You yeah, the majority of people are tasters in the room. Okay. So I'm gonna now that I know a little bit about your taster status, I am going to make some predictions about your dietary behavior. Right? It's like I can see into the future. We're gonna find out just how super it is. To, wow, there are some some folks are really experiencing this. <laughs>
0: okay. Don't forget you have a mint if you need. Know yeah, and water. Exactly. Okay. I'm, I'm, sorry.
2: I'm sorry. We're sorry. Yes, am. we're sorry. I, I wish I wish it could be something other than bitter, but sadly, no. Okay, so genetics plays an important role in this trait. You, are the child of two super tasters? That's a very strong possibility that you will be a super taster. If you're the child of non tasters, you're likely to be a non taster. And if you've got a parent of, of both persuasions, you're probably going to be a taster. It's not 100% perfect, but it's pretty close. So let's see. We think of super as being good, right? Superman, supergirl. Good thing to be super. This gentleman over here might tell you differently. I don't know. But knows. Um, but based on your taster status, we may know some things about how you typically experience the, the food world. So for super tasters, and to some extent for tasters, you might not enjoy cruciferous vegetables. Those are vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, bok choy, arugula, uh, kale, what are brussels sprouts.
0: Is there a difference between whether they're
2: cooked or not? So it can be, yes. So you may, cooking is going to change the flavor of those foods. And remember, taste is one component. So it may help to reduce some of the bitterness. In some cases, it may increase it. Okay, all, right. <laughs> all right. So, uh, grapefruit. Super tasters, do you like grapefruit? Some of you do. Okay. So remember, taste is not the only thing driving your behavior. But it's going to help to contribute to it, right? So, avoiding cruciferous vegetables is not a good thing because they have a lot of nutritious uh, properties that are important for you and your overall health, okay? So, being a super taster might not be so super. What about uh, picky eaters? Would you say you're a picky eater? We're going to hear all about picky eating in just a moment. But uh, the ch- children who are super tasters, their parents, complain more about picky eating than their non-taster children, okay? So you may be a picky eater if you're a super taster. What about uh, non-tasters? Do you like coffee? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Do you use sugar in your coffee? No. No? So, okay. So what we know about this sort of behavior is that super tasters will say that coffee is extremely bitter and many of them don't drink it. But the weird thing is is that non-tasters don't report it being so bitter, but they put more sugar in their coffee. <laughs> so uh, non-tasters tend to have a bigger sweet tooth than super-tasters. So non-tasters, do you, have a, do you think you have a sweet tooth? Many of you? Okay. Um, oh, okay, alcohol. So kids in the room don't listen to this part. Uh, super tasters uh, will report that really hoppy beers, um, wines, some spirits are too bitter, and they tend not to drink as much alcohol as their non-taster counterparts. Now, I think Karel, we talked about the fact yeah, that
0: this, is, this, beer.
2: this does not work for you. You're a super taster, but you really enjoy beer. I do, okay. but.
0: Um does that mean it's something that uh, you can develop a taste, even though you don't like it? Absolutely.
2: So repeated exposure. I'm not making any. <laughs> 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 but repeated exposure will will get you more comfortable and, and develop a, a a liking for things. So you know how we try to introduce new foods to kids and they reject it. You got to keep introducing those foods. Okay. All right. So I don't know if it works for everybody, but we have some insight on how you behave if you're a taster or not. All right, so i want to wrap this up. I just want to let you know that taste plays an important role in the foods that you eat, but it is not the only factor, right? We talked about flavor and how aroma and texture is really important for us to enjoy the foods that we eat. What you choose to eat is really important for your overall health. And as we just talked about, even if you're a super taster, you can't use that to avoid trying new foods, OK? And that's all I've got. So thank you so much for
1: Early on, that I interpret it as the possibility that there are different types of super tasters?
2: Um, I don't know that there are different types of super tasters. However, this is one compound and one bitter receptor on the tongue. There are 38 known bitter receptors, so just because you're not a super taster for this doesn't mean that your sense of bitterness is somehow really skewed. But because we have this very genetic uh, based trait that we can do all kinds of experiments on. Much of the literature has, has focused on this particular receptor. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Should we take
0: questions at the end? Or? Yeah, there will be time for questions. questions. Sorry, hold up. But everybody, please give a hand for Robin Tucker. Well, what's your biggest
1: take home? Um,
0: I found out that I'm a super taster. The, to me, the strip tastes like, um, like an old lemon, like a really old. Sour lemon, you know, like the, 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 the sourness of a lemon, but just really bitter. It was one of the worst tastes I've ever had. Still lingering in my mouth, even after I chewed gum. Horrible. It's horrible.
1: And I learned I'm not a super taster, even though I don't like coffee or beer or vegetables, but that's okay. Uh, I just don't like them. But my biggest take home actually is no pig, no party. And, uh, the rest of my life. At least the rest of the week. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to carry that over to every party I go to. But you know, there's more to the story about what we like and what we don't
0: like. That's right. So with that, let's introduce our second guest. Please welcome Helen Vite, a food historian in the MSU History Department.
3: All right. So I am going to talk about picky eating and picky eaters. Um, Because a lot of people assume today that picky eating is biological, and that all children are naturally picky eaters. And who can blame them? Because if you look around modern America today, that's what you'd see and that's what you'd say. So many American children are picky, and that's regardless of things like ethnicity, or gender, or class, or things that usually we use to divide um, cultural differences between people. But, if you look just at America, you'd see pickiness. If you look in other parts of the world today, it looks much different. And if you look at other times, you see places where people don't see children as being picky, at all, and that's why it's so fascinating.
0: What day what are some historical or cultural examples we can compare with modern day US picky eaters?
3: So I'm a historian and I look at picky children in the past and, and also children in the past who weren't picky. Even in the US, pickiness is a really recent phenomenon. If you look in the 19th century, People didn't describe children as being picky at all. In fact, children, childish eating in the 19th century, meant being especially unpicky. It meant being greedy or undiscriminating or curious. If anyone in the 19th century was described as being picky, it was wealthy adults. It's not until the 1940s or 1950s, 19th century, that you start to see large numbers of American parents describing their children as being picky. By then, there, were a lot, there was a lot more food in American homes, there was a lot more snacking, and there were new ideas about child rearing that said, if your child refuses to eat the food that everybody else is eating, you should just give them something else to eat. Today, in other parts of the world,
2: there are still lots
3: of places where people don't perceive children to be especially picky and where there's still no distinction between children's food and adult food. In many cultures, children learn to eat spicy foods and fermented foods and bitter foods at the same time they learn to eat, period, in toddlerhood. But that is changing. Um, As the Western diet, which is based in heavily processed foods, spreads around the world, more and more cultures and places are saying children need special food. They need ultra-palatable food. And that is probably
1: not a great thing for global health. I'm thinking of every kid's menu every time we go out. That has like the same five things, right? It's like mac and cheese, spaghetti, pizza, chicken nuggets,
0: cheese.
1: grilled cheese. Yeah. Grilled cheese. Cheese. And if I asked my little guy right back there, I bet all of those things would be among some of his favorites. Have, um, You're not. I know. Well, that, that brings up my next question, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, but speaking of genetics, right, because I'm not a super taster, neither is Atlas, we've seen that some people are more, are are, um, biologically more sensitive to bitter tastes or sweet tastes than other people. So would that mean that some people are more naturally picky? So biology is
3: real. Humans are naturally attracted to salt and to fat and to sugar and some people are more sensitive tasters than others to a variety of tastes. Um, but when you look at a wide range of cultures, including in the past, it shows that almost anyone can learn to like almost anything that isn't toxic. Um, my child is here as well, and based on her facial expressions during the tasting, I'm thinking you're a super taster. You perhaps an extreme super-taster. You looked like you were in horrible agony. Um, and you were decked foods all the time when you were a baby and a toddler, but I followed sort of a different culture's roles when it came to it, and I would say that you learned to like cruciferous vegetables and grapefruit and all sorts of stuff that most kids are not supposed to like these days. So um, cilantro is actually a great example of this. Americans tend to have pretty strong feelings about it. Some people love it. Some people find it to be soapy and disgusting. Um, And studies suggest that there is a genetic basis for this difference. And yet, when we look at places where cilantro is a fundamental part of cuisine, there are places in Latin America and South Asia, kids learn to like cilantro from a very young age. And not, not just to accept it, but to like it even people with those same genetic markers.
0: With that being said, what is the best way to encourage a a picky eater to try more variety?
3: I think there is uh, deep wisdom in phrases like bon appetit, which means, uh, in essence, I hope you're hungry. Anybody, uh, adult or child, is so much more likely to enjoy a new food or a challenging taste if they have a good appetite. Today, and for the last several generations in the US, children have snacked regularly between meals. They've consumed a lot of milk. Um, And often when they finally get to sit down to lunch or dinner, they're just not that hungry. And it's not surprising to me that at that point, they're only interested in the most palatable, the most easy to like foods. So I think that doing what you can to, to make sure a child has a good appetite before a meal, and also, being confident that children really can learn to like almost any taste an adult can like. Um, those are both two huge steps in the right direction.
1: Thank you so much, Alan.
0: Well, now let's talk about another taste. Yes. Um, can anybody in the audience tell us what? Um, what what, what tastes we actually have? Can we name
1: them? We talked about a lot
0: of them earlier. Oh, was so All right, We're
1: a <laughs> Sweet, salty, bitter, sour. Umami. And there it is. we um, just umami. heard it. There's one
0: more, and it's called umami.
1: Umami. Does that is that has anyone is anyone unfamiliar with umami? Don't be shy. I was. Umami combined the Japanese characters for delicious and taste.
0: So here's a little bit of history. In the early 1900s, a University of Tokyo scientist named Kikune Ikeda was thinking about the taste of komudashi.
1: And for our audience, not as familiar with kombu
0: dashi. so k- komudashi it's a kind of kelp broth the story goes that he he was thinking whether the savoriness of the dish komudashi, was a biologically determined taste for something that he he couldn't quite pin down
1: Ah, oh, mystery. I love unserving up science when we explore food mysteries. So what happened next? So
0: Ikea he, he was determined to figure out what that something actually was, which involved, he, he chopped and he sampled uh, dried seaweed. That's how he was uh, doing his experiment.
1: And he figured out that this savory taste was associated with glutamate, which is a type of amino acid we find in many foods. But also, it's more than just a taste, exactly.
0: It's a sensation. Savoriness is altogether different than sweet, salty, bitter, and sour.
1: It's something beyond the glutamate itself. So if you were to sip uh, a mixture of monosodium glutamate or MSG, what we call, uh, for example, in a water solution, it wouldn't necessarily taste like anything. Although, Robin, you might have a little more to say about MSG.
2: I have some MSG up here if you would like to try what the prototypical taste, if we are studying taste, I, I'm a taste researcher, and if we want to test how sensitive you are to certain tastes or how much you like certain tastes, the stimulus that we will use is monosodium glutamate. So to me, it has that little hint of sodium, like saltiness, because it's got the sodium in that molecule, but then it, then it rapidly changes into something completely different. And I don't know if, if you agree, because we tried something yes. earlier, but it, it's not just salty, it's a complex sensation that we don't really have the words for in English. It's
0: like a flavor explosion. Uh, so umami itself is, uh, isn't is quite its own flavor, it's rather something that uh, enriches all the other ones.
1: Let's, let's hear an example. Pizza. I love pizza.
0: Who, who likes pizza in the room? Raise your hand if you like pizza. Pizza, one of the most universally loved foods probably in the entire world, the, the umami effect makes that cheese and tomato combination so enjoyable, and actually both cheese and tomatoes notably also contain MSG naturally. Uh, The experience involves both taste and aromas, and umami heightens each, but scientists don't exactly understand how that happens.
1: But it works differently than our four basic tastes, which is something we touched on earlier. So we know a little more about sweet, salty, bitter, and sour. Those are more clear cut, and we know why we experience them. And as both Robin and Helen got out of it before, we know we like sweet because sugars are essential for our bodies to function, for our brains to think. Um, We crave sugar. We crave that sweet taste because we need it so much. And we need a small amount of salt, so a little salt on our foods generally tastes good, but a pile of salt, for most of us, probably all of us, doesn't. And then, of course, bitterness, sourness, Those do tell us if something's maybe toxic or if it's begun to rot. All of these provide important clues that are linked to our survival.
0: So the big question is, what is umami for?
1: And no one knows.
0: Nobody knows. So unfortunately, this is a food science mystery that we cannot solve today.
1: We can't, but we do know glutamates themselves serve vital roles in human biology. For example, they make it possible for the neurons to fire in our brains, and they also aid in our digestion. They're present in breast milk, and umami receptors line our small intestines.
0: But here's the kicker: our bodies manufacture glutamates as well. So we're back to wondering why umami.
1: And that is the best part of science: searching for why. And what I think is maybe some of you here tonight will be the ones to help this to help uh, figure this mystery out eventually. So I'm curious if any of our young audience members might be interested in becoming scientists one day? Nobody. (laughs) Maybe a couple. All right, to be fair, it was actually a trick question because we are all born scientists. We're born naturally curious about the world and we want to figure out why things work. We want to figure out how our bodies work and how our planet works. And so we're here testing hypotheses and asking why.
0: And if you do become a scientist, you might be the one to figure out what the mommy is for. So uh, with that, we have some uh, some time for some questions. Uh, If anybody has questions for uh, Robin or Helen, go ahead. We have a microphone coming around right now. You can go ahead and do that. yelling and turn on. Like the mic, the audience mic isn't on.
1: Like for Oh, there's a Does power button a power on the mic?
0: <laughs> there should be more power oh, There
1: Oh yeah,
2: yeah. Okay. Is there any connection that's known between being a super taster and cilantro? I, I'm not aware of one. Um, I think those are two completely different um, uh, genes, and so you may have different alleles for that special bitter taster, and then you might have certain alleles for the gene that uh, determines cilantro liking. So you might be unlucky, maybe it's unlucky, I don't know, super taster and cilantro hater. That could be a combination. Or you could be a super taster and a cilantro liker. It's just sort of a, you know, whatever you get from your parents, but as we've talked about, you can still maybe overcome some of that genetic, uh, you know, your genes are not your destiny, I guess is what I want to say. So um, exposure to cilantro might make you a cilantro-liker. It might take a lot of exposure, so.
0: <laughs> Question over there? Some questions over here.
3: <laughs> there have been... Um, uh, a trend to say that monosodium glutamate was bad. Um, and I wondered what the feeling is on that. I was surprised to learn that it's actually naturally in foods and in our body.
1: That's a great question.
2: I uh, So the latest meta-analysis that looked at studies of whether or not there were uh, bad reactions to monosodium glutamate could not replicate the symptoms that people said they had when they thought they had eaten it. So there's no direct evidence to suggest that it causes any, it used to be or they, they think that from eating Chinese food, you get sick after you ate Chinese food, and so it's got to be the MSG. But scientists haven't been able to reliably replicate those findings, and so it doesn't seem to be a, an issue. Um, you. If you do have a reaction after eating something that has MSG, it might not be the MSG at all, it might be something else in that food. And
3: MSG really does occur naturally in a, a large number of foods that people eat all the time. I mean, uh, all sorts of vegetables, eat broccoli, yeah. mushrooms, and something like Parmesan cheese is like solid MSG. I mean, not it's not literally, but it has a, it has a, a large amount. And often people who believe they're affected by MSG are not, Affected when they eat foods that they don't know contains it, which is the classic sign of a, a false, a
0: false diagnosis Question for the food historian. Are, are there foods that used to be eaten in like America or wherever that, that are no longer Like for example, my mom likes spam because she grew up and lived through the depression That was about the only way she got, you know, something of something meat so Can you help me with that?
3: Absolutely. I mean, there's a huge number of foods that used to be eaten. Maybe one of the most uh, visceral is the the commonness of organ meats in earlier times. Um, If you open any 19th century cookbook, you see all sorts of recipes for liver and kidney and brains and and, and things that we we think of as gross, but were just everyday foods at that time period. At the same time, in a 19th century cookbook, you don't see things that we might assume are classic American foods. Like you don't see much ground beef, you're not going to find hamburgers. Um, you don't even see much chocolate. You know, this or, that's, that's those are relatively 20th century developments. Really? Mm-hmm. Thank
0: you. Okay, so why American likes cheese? Because so <laughs> they really do not have that kind of like super sour or super um, sweet or even like super
2: spicy or something, why is it attractive? Umami. <laughs> it, is, it
3: is a pretty umami taste, in general, cheese. It's, it's But it's, 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 cheese is interesting too because cheese is something where if you grew up in America, you, many, many Americans love cheese and they assume that that's a natural taste. Whereas people in other cultures who don't grow up with cheese find it to be nauseating and really distinctively unattractive and so that that's a classic kind of, case for Americans just kind of be like what what you think is natural and normal in fact is not necessarily
2: I think um, what about for those of you who didn't grow up here what are your feelings about peanut butter Like thumbs down Uh, a lot of people I know that that didn't grow up here think peanut butter is like the worst thing ever Um, and and yet, it's a very cultural food here, right? Like we put it on everything and kids eat it, you grow up with it. Same with cheese, like you grow up eating grilled cheese and that, you just sort of develop that taste. But it's a very cultural thing. Well, peanut butter is pretty good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, kidding, I, I agree.
1: Uh, I didn't really know cheese got some special flavor, but I still like it. I
2: don't care.
0: We have time for about two more questions. So I saw a show recently, or maybe a month ago, about the evolution of birthday cake, and that up until post-Industrial Revolution, there was no such thing as birthday cake, except in the very wealthy society. And then as soon as they were able to deliver flour across the country on the railroads, that's when all of a sudden it showed up in every grocery store, or I guess every table in America. So what I'm getting at is, from the historian's perspective, and the difference in American culture with pickiness or with diet, Diet, Western diet. Isn't sugar like sort of the culprit? And once we had access to sugar nationwide, didn't that become like can you kind of talk to about sugar's role in sort of the Western diet evolution?
3: Yeah, I mean, sugar, there wasn't a whole lot of sugar. There's not a lot of sugar naturally. There's not a lot of sugar in most people's diets until sugar cane production became widespread, which really happened with. Uh, spread across the Atlantic, and imperialism, and slavery, and after that, say the last 250 years, a little bit more, um, 300 plus years, you see sugar becoming an increasingly part, increasingly large part of people's diets, and you see things like horrible tooth decay and stuff like that follow, and and, um, sugar makes things more palatable. It's an incredibly attractive taste. It's incredibly valuable. And nature is a sign that something has calories and energy. Um, Sugar, I don't think, has to be linked to junk foods or bad foods. I can imagine sugar being part of a recipe that's helpful and, in fact, possibly a way to make something more appealing so in small quantities it can be valuable. But in general, it tends to be linked to foods that aren't great for us and often is a major ingredient in highly
1: processed foods that, um, you know, don't have much nutritional value these days. I, I just wanted to just add to that, because if we, if we had more time today, we plan to talk a little bit about the history of sugar in this country. Uh, we do have that available as a podcast online, so if you just find Serving Up Science from WKAR, there's a, a very, one of my favorite episodes actually, about the sugar industry and what we've known for decades about its effects on our bodies.
2: Well, um, one of the things that I had uh, found in my travels was really revolting that I learned that people got used to when they were children was Vegemite mm-hmm. in Australia. Mm-hmm. What flavor or taste is that? <laughs> I think if we had a taste for disgusting. I think that <laughs> might be it. it I, I think it's probably some umami. Uh, the secret is very lightly spread. Like you can't eat it like peanut butter. But it's, it, that is a, an example of a very cultural food. Marmite in the UK, Vegemite in Australia. Very much something that you grow up with and develop a fondness for.
1: Tufu is very popular in China. And there are many tofu dishes. Uh, my, question, my question is, uh, we have special tofu, stinky tofu like a stinky cheese. tofu is preserved egg. Preserved egg. And the three spicy bean curd, These three dishes. Especially to food with preserved eggs, uh, some taste, uh, stringent, and spicy, because not only spicy, but also non-taste. This non-taste and uh, stringent taste is good for health, for us. Mm. Yes.
2: So like, fermented foods have a lot of uh, nutritional qualities that we're only beginning to understand? So, fermented foods like uh, miso soup and tofu and things like that um, are actually good for the, the bacteria in your intestines, your gut bacteria. And so, there have been some studies to suggest that eating those foods is good for your overall health of your intestines.
0: Like kimchi, does that like kimchi as well? Yes. Yeah. So, um,
2: other fermented things, I'm trying to think. Salt sauerkraut. sour. Salt salt salt. Yes, yeah, sauerkraut. Thank you. So there salt. Are, salt. Uh, salt. salt.
1: Salt love, yeah. like some some. Salt oh, the salt
3: well
2: is something that I salt The Japanese delicacy, yes. So lots of fermented foods good for gut bacteria. All right, yes. the last
1: question.
2: Last question either? here. Go ahead stand up. So how
1: does
3: the, uh, the, the foods in America
1: change, and why it changed? That's a
2: question. That's a, a good question. <laughs> <like, well, laughs> go to MSU and take my class <laughs> <Thanks for that. laughs>
0: Yeah. (laughs) Good question. It's a hard question to answer. It's a a long answer, yeah. Well, we'd love to uh, continue this conversation into the night, but we're running out of time. So I want to thank everybody for joining us for Serving Up Science Live, our first show here at the MSU Mm -hmm. Science Festival. Serving Up Science is produced in association with food at MSU.
1: And you can hear us on WKAR every Wednesday afternoon during All Things Considered. Or reach out by email and say hello, because we love when people say hi.
0: We really hope you've enjoyed the show, and we hope you've learned a little something new about more taste food. We really hope you have a fantastic rest of your